All right, so we're continuing uh, today with our discussion about the uh, of the Bhagavad Gita, uh, especially as uh, commented on and described by Roy Davis in his book, um, The Eternal Way. So, The Eternal Way, the Bhagavad Gita, classic scriptural task, te- uh, text, and in our Kriya Yoga tradition, uh, the two texts that are really the the grounding, the fundamentals that have everything we need to know are the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali and the and the Bhagavad Gita. And in our tradition, uh, the Bhagavad Gita actually uh, has has a lot of prominence. Um, our our spiritual great great grandfather Lahiri Mahashaya um, was very fond of the Bhagavad Gita and uh, spent much time. You know, giving discourses and discussing and reading, and so this was a foundation for much of his teaching, and commented on it very extensively. And it is his commentary and his insight about the the Bhagavad Gita uh, that was the support for Mr. Davis's uh, explanation of the symbology and also Paramahansa Yogananda. So we have a, a very uh, deep relationship the Bhagavad Gita is in our spiritual DNA and so it's useful to to look at this and to examine it and to talk about it think about it and go back to it again and again because it continues to provide us with insights with uh, new ways of looking at at uh, what's happening at life and and uh, what's important and how we can most easily move with life together and wake up so yesterday we concluded chapter two, uh, which is uh, the yoga of Samkhya, which is kind of the overview. This is a Krishna giving Arjuna the big picture and saying, you know, you think you're somebody, you're nobody. You think the other people that you're going to fight with are somebody, they're nobody. It's all just part of this cosmic drama. It's that you as a, as a soul, you are never born, you never die. And so, uh, take your place, do what you're supposed to do in this cosmic drama. And in that way, you will find fulfillment. You will find awakening. You'll find you're moving in harmony with life and the obstacles and the suffering and the conditionings and all, all the limitations will all subside. They will all go away. And, and so now chapter three begins with the yoga of action. But before we get into chapter three, I want to go back to a part that I really didn't, uh, I really didn't read uh, what Krishna had said here, and we didn't discuss it too much, but it's relevant, and, uh, and I want to share this because that way you'll see. So, uh, so toward the end of chapter two, he says, foolish men talk of religion in cheap, sentimental words leaning on the scriptures. They say God speaks here and God speaks here alone. So here's our religion. This is our codified idea of what God is, what the nature of reality is, and the individuals who are teaching rely on scripture. They point to the scripture and they say, the scripture says this is what's happening and this is where their power from it comes from and this is what they rely on. So this is sort of a fundamental approach to uh, spirituality, this religion and scripture. And so Krishna goes on 
And he says, driven by desire for pleasure and power, ritual, they strive to gain heaven. But rebirth is the only result of their striving. They're lured by their own desires, besotted by the scripture's words. Their minds have not been made clear by the practice of meditation. He's talking about those who are relying upon scripture, who are relying on traditional religion, who are relying on these uh, ideas, but they don't have realization. They don't have contemplation and coming into this experience is realization for themselves. So they rely on the scripture. They rely on what the wise ones, what the ones who actually have had insight, what they say, and then they just parrot this. I remember there was a, a, a point in the autobiography of a yogi where someone came to Sri Yukteswar and they were so proud of all their knowledge and all their information. They had studied uh, you know, the scriptures and the Vedas, and they could recite the Bhagavad Gita, you know, from memory. And so they had all this understanding and all this knowledge, explain all the things that they knew and how smart they were. And and finally, your test board just said, Stop, hold on a second. You know, I know all these things that you're talking about, but what do you know from yourself? You're repeating information that you've read and you've met, you know, been able to memorize and you can call it up at will, but what's coming from you? What's coming from your heart? What's coming from your realization? You know, where's that? That's where the juice is, you see. So Krishna is saying, you know, all these people rely on scripture and they talk a good story, you know, and they create, a, you know, they keep us entertained and engaged and, uh, and so much of what we see in religion whether it's formal religion or, you know, yoga, um, many, many places I see, there's a lot of very superficial teaching. It looks good. They put on a good show and they have all the right clothes and their incense and the flowers and, and the rituals. And, you know, this is all great. But then when you listen to what they say and what they're relying on, they're just parroting, you know, these, uh, these platitudes, these, these very light, uh, uh, ideas that oh, that sound good on the surface, but it's like, well, what does that really mean? You know, there's this common thing that we hear say, God is love. Well, what does that mean? I mean, how does that work? What do, what do you mean by God? What do you mean by love? If God is, is Ishvara, if God is ultimate reality, God has no personality. He's not, doesn't have an agenda and he's not certainly loving some people and not loving other people. And what is that process? What does it mean? So we have to go past the platitudes and past the, you know, the good ideas and get to the realization for ourselves. And he goes on, he says, the scriptures dwell in duality. Be beyond all opposites, Arjuna, anchored in the real and free, free from thoughts of wealth and comfort. Let go of all this as unnecessary as a well is to a village on the banks of a river, so unnecessary are all the scriptures to someone who has seen the truth. As unnecessary as a well is to a village on the banks of a river, so unnecessary are all the scriptures to someone who has seen the truth. So, of course, the scriptures, the Vedas, the Bhagavad Gita, these things all serve to direct us, to direct our attention 
to direct our awareness, but then we have to do the work. Where we have to take, take them in little pieces and contemplate and make them real for ourselves. What is our realization? What is our experience? How, what does this mean? How does this feel? See? And the reason I wanted to go back and review that is because um, our spiritual great-great-grandfather, Lahiri Mahashaya, um, wrote this his uh, abode, his house was maybe, um, I don't know, 10, 15 minute walk from the Ganges in Benares. So he had to walk through the little narrow pathways to get down to the ghat, to the bathing ghat where he would go and do his bath and his ablution. And, and so on the way, he was said to sing this little song in Bengali. It wasn't in Sanskrit, it was a Bengali chant. And I will not labor you with my, my worship is a rare worship. I no longer sprinkle Ganga water. My worship is a rare worship. I do not need any fruits or flowers. I have lost all my utensils of worship. I do not need any fruits or flowers. I have lost all my utensils of worship. I have forgotten Shiva, Kali, and Tara. I have forgotten Shiva, Kali, and Tara. I have drowned in the Almighty Father. My worship is a rare worship. I no longer sprinkle Ganga water. My worship is a rare worship. I have forgotten the male and the female deities. I am absorbed in my indwelling soul. I have forgotten the male and female deities. I am one with my indwelling self. Attached and engrossed in Trinity, Attached and engrossed in Trinity, I have dived deep in my spinal canal. My body sense is gone. I am in joy. I worship my body with my divine power. Attached and engrossed in Trinity, I have dived deep in my spinal canal. My body sense is gone. I am in joy. I worship my body with my divine power. And so Lahiri said that his teaching was Atma Kriya. That is, Atma is, is this essence of our self. It's our spiritual self. Now worship Atman on the altar of the spine with prana. So this was all inside now. We no longer need to worry about doing you know, having the right clothing and having the right beads and showing up at the right place and, and all this. All we have to do is to become interiorized, to be quiet, to allow ourselves to wake up and allow consciousness to unfold within us. And then we find this revelation, this realization automatically unfolds. So this is, this is uh, important, I think, useful for us to remember. So we don't get too tied up in the details. I know I'm constantly I'm counseling people and so many times uh, they come and they say, you know, I, it, it's so complicated, this meditation, and I'm just having a really difficult time because I start off and I do the 20 minutes of energization exercises and then I do the Maha Mudra and then I sit down and chant the Hong Saw Mantra so many times and then chant Om through the chakras and then I do my Kriya Pranayam and 
by that time, you know, my hour of meditation is gone and I haven't even sat to meditate. I haven't even got quiet yet. So we get, it, it's very easy to get tied up in the, the details and the ritual and miss the point. And the point is that we want to just sit in silence to be very deeply quiet and to allow our awareness to unfold of its natural condition in, in, its, own, in its natural way. That this will happen as soon as we remove the obstacles, and the obstacles are the thoughts and the considerations, the ideas we have about what's supposed to be happening in meditation. We have to get rid of that too. Well, somebody told me they had this amazing experience and there was this radiant, dazzling light in the crown chakra and they were transformed and you know, joy, joyful and bliss for two days. And so, wow, I want that. You know, so then we then we're you know conspiring somehow to push the universe around and say, I want this experience, I want this experience. Well, you know, all these expectations about what we think is supposed to be happening stand in the way of what's happening, you know, what can happen. So we even let go of our expectations. What is meditation? What is the objective? What is pure consciousness? I don't know. If I knew that, I would just switch it on. So what I have to do is find out. How do I find out? Well, I have to let go of my ideas about it in order to allow it to emerge. And so it's, it's kind of an interesting process. It's like we have to sneak up on it. As long as we're thinking about it and have an idea about what it's supposed to be, then it, we keep that image stands between us and the actual experience. So we have the aspiration to be fully awake, we have the aspiration to allow our consciousness to unfold. And then we have to kind of sit back and, and feel our way into it, you see. Allow it to happen. So this is a gentle process, but, it's act, but we're active, we're intentional in um, continuing to keep our attention focused, attention focused, and allowing everything that's not relevant to be disregarded. So does that make sense? So we've got to the end of uh, chapter two. In chapter two, uh, Arjuna uh, concluded by asking uh, Krishna, higher consciousness, saying, well, what, what are the characteristics of someone who's, you know, who's wise, who has this together? And the beginning of chapter three, which is the yoga of action, Arjuna says to Krishna, seeking souls, says to higher consciousness, if you think that understanding is superior to action, Krishna, then why do you keep urging me to engage in this savage act, to take this, to engage in this battle? If you think that understanding is superior, then why are you impelling me? Why are you telling me that I should keep acting here? With words that seem inconsistent, your teaching has bewildered my mind. Tell me, what must I do to achieve the highest good? So here we have Again, the devotee, the disciple, is confused. They're not quite, they don't quite get it. They don't quite understand um, this big picture, which Krishna has laid out uh, in chapter two. And so now he's going, I'm confused. You on one hand, you say, I'm supposed to act. On the other hand, you say, man of wisdom does this and lives like that. And so this understanding and wisdom is really important, but you're still pushing me to act. And I, I, what do I do? I don't know. And so Krishna comes back and replies and says, 
In this world, there are two main paths, the yoga of understanding for contemplative men and for men who are active, the yoga of action. Now, the yoga of understanding is, is called jnana yoga, and jnana yoga is the yoga of the intellect, discernment, wisdom. And for one who has a mind that is very focused and very insightful and not easily distracted and not uh, carrying a lot of excess baggage and memory and uh, conditionings, for one who has a very clear, decisive intellect and mind, um, this yoga of wisdom, jnana yoga, yoga of understanding, um, can be a way to full realization. We can come to a full awareness of what our nature is and the nature of ultimate reality and, how, and the process of cosmic manifestation. And we can wake up and see this very clearly to realize that, to know this through discernment and intellect. But this is a gift, this is a, 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 uh, an ability that not many people have. I mean, we all have discernment to some degree, but the ability to have this laser-focused discernment and this ability, this intellectual ability to really take it all apart and see how it all works together and come into that awareness, this is, this is a, for a few. You know, this is not usual. So for m most of us, um, the yoga of action is the way that we go. This is the, this is the way we engage. We are in the world. We are active in the world. We need to act. And so Krishna goes on to explain the yoga of action. And he says, not by avoiding actions does a man gain freedom from action. So we don't gain freedom from action by avoiding acting. And not by renunciation alone can he reach the goal. So basically, uh, Krishna is saying we have to engage, we have to be active, we have to participate. If you, you know, if you are trying to to rise above this life and rise above the limitations and the suffering, you can't do it by shutting everything off and sitting in your closet. This doesn't work. This is actually another action. You know, it's, but we're not acknowledging that this renunciation, pushing away, pushing away, takes a lot of energy, and it doesn't produce a, a useful result. So this, the the actions we're talking about, a man cannot gain freedom from action, and not by avoiding actions does a man gain freedom from action. And trying to become free of is karma. Karma is basically this law of cause and effect says that everything that's happening right now is an effect and everything that's happening right now, every effect has had a previous cause. And so the causes uh, produce the effects. The effects are the karmas, that is the things that are actively encouraging us, moving us in one direction, moving us away from things, moving us toward things. And the wisdom is to, if we are awake, then we recognize, ah, so this is an effect that was produced by this cause in the past. So I can notice that that's coming up. You know, I have this, this, this impulse or something is kind of pushing in me in one direction or another, but I'm not owning that as my karma anymore, but rather I'm seeing that this is the result of normal actions. And because of this, I can look at it and I can deal with it. I can handle it. I'm not compelled 
So I'm not compelled by the causes that have been put in place by the past and the things that I'm carrying around. I notice, wow, there's some resentment coming up. What's that about? And so then I can look at that. And rather than just living in resentment and, you know, in anger and frustration about some situation, I can just say, oh, look at this resentment. Isn't that interesting? And I realize now that at the time, whatever this condition was, I wasn't seeing clearly, you know, somebody else, you know, was trying to get one over on me or disrespecting me. And I look now and I say, oh, well, they were not disrespecting me. It wasn't so much about me. It was about them. This was, you know, their conditionings had led them to this reaction. And I, and now I'm reacting to their reaction. And so I can go back and, and, and see clearly what happens. I can see clearly how causes got put into place. I can neutralize this karma. You know, I was, you know, I was worried. I was afraid. And so all these things come up and the, and these karmas, these things that are impulses that lead us in one direction or another are the things that we're looking to overcome. And we can overcome them from, from the higher viewpoint, from being conscious know from being mindful we can see what's happening rather than living as the effect of these things so krishna is saying you can't you can't uh, you know you can't neutralize this stuff by avoiding it you can't neutralize this by renouncing it rather engage become active take responsibility no one not even for an instant can exist without acting all beings are compelled however unwilling, by the three strands of nature called the gunas. All beings are compelled, even if unwilling, by the three strands of nature called the gunas. So if we remember, the gunas are these three characteristic, three attributes of creation. We have sattva, rajas, and tamas. Sattva is expansive, radiant. Uh, Tamas is inertial, dense, heavy, and rajas is passionate action, movement between rajas and, I mean, between uh, sattvas and tamas. So these three gunas, these three strands are woven into the heart of everything. And because they're woven into the heart of everything, everything has these characteristics. You know, you walk through the forest and there's dead trees laying down with fungus growing on them. This is tamas. This is heaviness, inertia. This is going back into and transforming into another, you know, more primitive uh, element. And we can see, uh, you know, evidence of uh, sattvas, of these radiant, of, you know, this expressive, creative. Um, you know, I walk out in the woods and I listen to the birds sing and I think this is very elevating and sattvic and, you know, awakening and isn't this wonderful. And then we see rajas, we see a lot of activity that just things are moving around just for the sake of moving, restless, restless. Um, you know, I have some, I, I have a, a nest of, uh, I guess they're yellow jackets or something out on the porch that I have to deal with. And, and these little guys are restless. They're just constantly coming and going and running around. And, you know, we just see this very rajasic uh, experience of these little insects or, the, you know, the, in, or the, the ant mound. And they're just all zipping, zipping, zipping constantly and not even going in a straight direction. It's like they don't have a direction. They just move around to, for the sake of moving. So this is rajas. And then we, and we see individuals. We know individuals who are bright and kind of uplifting. They're fun to be around, feel good, you know, creative, optimistic. 
and we know individuals that are uh, I don't know if you if you're all familiar with the the old children's story Winnie the Pooh but in Winnie the Pooh there was a character there was a donkey named Eeyore and Eeyore lost his tail and so Eeyore walked around and he just constantly said oh bother I lost my tail constantly depressed negative no, nothing good could ever possibly happen and if they tried to cheer him up he would always find the po worst possible uh thing and, and he was just eeyore this is tomasic this is heavy and so we know people that are kind of living that negative fearful uh judgmental critical headspace you know and then tomasic uh, and some of them are even worse. I mean, some some of them are violent and aggressive, and this is very tomasic. And then we know people who are rajasic. They're restless. They can't sit still. You know, it's the, if there's nothing, if, you know, the, the power goes out here. If the power goes out, what do we do? We can't watch television. The, the, the tablets don't work. The devices don't work. So we have to go shopping. You know, have to do something. Go visit somebody. Um, Move, constant movement, constantly needing input, constantly needing stimulation, passion. This is all rajas. So we can look at this in the individuals. We can look at this in the food we have. You know, we have some food that's very sattvic, very elevating, very light, you know, uh, organic, fresh, well-cooked, you know, food that really you know, encourages and nurtures us, makes us feel good, looks good, tastes good. Uh, rajasic, you know, a lot of spices and things that really get the senses going and, and uh, titillate the t taste buds. And, and then tamasic, you know, the, the food that you found in the refrigerator that uh, was cooked three days ago and still looks good. There's nothing growing on it yet, but there's no prana. There's no energy. There's no life force, you know. Or uh, we brought we brought home... Uh, basket of vegetables from the local farmer's market and and the the chard open up the chard and it was like it had all these little bug holes and little black spots all over the leaves and it's like should we really eat that you know is that is that going to be good for us um and of course our our new uh our new bellwether for this is to ask ourselves well if god came to the door and was and we invited him for dinner, would we serve this to God? Always looking for the sattvic things, uh, minimizing the rajasic, and certainly eliminating the tamasic. So, so Krishna is saying, you know, whether you like it or not, if you're alive in the world, you're under the influence of the gunas. Sattva, tamas, uh, rajas, and they, are, they show up in everything, everywhere. So everything has these elements. Some have a little more than others, and we can look at those and we can just observe and go, wow, that's pretty heavy. That's pretty tamasic, pretty inertial. And this is radiant and kind of elevating and uplifting. And, you know, and this is just activating the environment that you're in, your home, your, the room that you're in. Um, you know, all these things can either stimulate one or the other. So we are, we are, compelled and, and acted upon by the gunas. He who controls his actions 
but lets his mind dwell on sense object is deluding himself and spoiling his search for the deepest truth. And so if we, if we are uh, intentional in our actions, so we're sitting down to meditate once a day and we're, we're trying to be controlled about what we're doing, but we still have our senses being drawn to all these objects outside. We're still being uh, compelled and controlled to some degree, distracted by all the input from around us all this external stuff. So we can be engaged in action and at the same time be distracted, you see. We can sit to meditate, we sit to meditate, you know, we start to chant our mantra, listen, we watch the breath, chant our mantra, and at the same time that we're engaged in this action, this meditation, and we're watching the breath and we're listening to the mantra, the mind starts to float up these ideas. What's for lunch, you know? Did I remember to turn off the fire on the stove? Did I, you know, did I, did I send that email back to so-and-so? These, these thoughts just start bubbling up. We're active, we're meditating, we're watching the breath, we're doing our, our um, pranayama, or, or listening to our mantra, and at the same time, the senses are distracting. The mind is distracting, distracting. So... So this is something that we pay attention to and become intentional. He says, the superior man is he whose mind can control his senses with no attachment to results. He engages in the yoga of action. So we talked about this yesterday, and we will talk about it many times in the Bhagavad Gita, that we are not to be attached to the results of our actions. We do what we do because we can do it, because it's there to be done, and that's enough. And the, the results will be what the results are. Superior man is he whose mind can control his senses with no attachment to the results. So we do what we do. Do any actions that you must do, since action is better than inaction. Even the existence of your body depends on necessary actions. So, and then he goes on the next next. Uh, uh, section, the whole world becomes a slave to its own activity, Arjuna. If you want to be truly free, perform all actions as worship. So the whole world becomes a slave to its own activity. If you want to be truly free, then perform all actions as worship. So do what you must do. Do your necessary actions. Don't look to the results. Don't look for the expectations about what's going to happen. And perform your actions as worship. This means that we're that it, when we talk about worship, we're talking about acknowledging that we are an expression of God. We're not separate, separate from God. And that what we are interacting with is God. And so our worship is recognizing that all of our actions are contributions, our service to this higher reality. If we see everything we do, if we think about what am I doing next, this is service. This is serving either to keep this body together so that it can provide more service, so that it can be do the useful things it needs to do to live on purpose. Or the next thing I'm doing is to help someone, to, to uh, support an organization, support my work, you know, do whatever it is that I'm doing. But I do that, do it in the context and with the attitude that this is service to God. This is service to life, that I'm making a contribution. 
everything that I need is provided. Everything, I mean, here, you've got this beautiful body, it's pretty smart, knows how to take care of itself. It runs itself fairly efficiently most of the time. Uh, and when it wobbles a little bit, we, you know, we make some adjustments, but it's got this in, innate intelligence and, uh, and it's wonderful. So that's a blessing. And, and I'm also supported by my life, you know, my parents for the, in the beginning, uh, mentors, uh, all these amazing places where life has just turned up and invited me to do the things that I'm doing and continues to invite me to do more things. I can just look at all this and say, I'm so blessed, you know, and I'm here, I'm alive and I'm fairly functional. And so I have what I need and what's left for me to do, what's left in my actions for me to see how can I serve? How can I uh, contribute? How can I continue this process of life, this unfolding process and make my, you know, pay my way? What's the energy exchange for my life? The energy exchange is I do whatever I can do, whatever I'm led to do. And I don't do it because there's something in it for me because I don't need anything, you see. It, there's nothing that I need to acquire, nothing I need to have. And if there is something that's useful that will help me provide a better service, it just comes. You see, it's, it's, it's part of this natural process. So, so we can do everything that we do, every action we can do, consciously uh, understanding and aware that this is part of our worship that there is not a separation between our spiritual life, our spiritual path, and our physical reality and the rest of our life. It is one thing, one thing. And all of our teachers, all of our gurus have said, you know, make sure that you understand this. There is not the, the your normal mundane life and the spiritual life. There is one life, one life. It is all spirit. You are spirit. You are interacting with spirit. One thing. And if you keep that in mind, if you live that way consciously, then you see every interaction is an opportunity for God to interact with God. Every interaction is an opportunity to provide a service, you know, to contribute some way, even if it's just a smile, if it's a kind word, uh, if it's a little inspiration, if it's just paying attention. Sometimes just listening is such a blessing, you know, such a gift. It is listen to people. Um, and so we can engage and see everything that we're doing is helping to support life in some way. And so this is our worship. So this is, this is what, uh, what Krishna is recommending here in the beginning of chapter three. And I think this is a good place to, uh, to say this is enough for this week with the Gita. And we will continue next week and uh, continue with the Gita. I think that's, that's, uh, fun for me anyway and uh and uh and we'll continue to look more deeply at this yoga of action and how that how we can uh, move more harmoniously with that so uh before we conclude for this week are there any questions or no good all right so so everybody be joyful and Act intentionally and remember as much as you can that whatever you're doing can be worship. You can give this all to God and you'll find that it's really, really quite joyful and fulfilling along the way. Namaste. We'll see you soon.